This week struck me. Did, I, did, did any of you feel this? I, what, what hit me on Tuesday, and I just, I don't know if it's because it was Tuesday, the day of the original event, but I had three people, three, ask me about the day. And was I acknowledging it in any way? Was I aware of it in any way? What, what about the day? Last Tuesday was September, 9th, or September 11th, 17 years after the day the towers were struck. Uh, and it, it just struck me as unusual that three people raised it as a question. Plus, I found myself, and I don't know that I've done this before on the school bus, I found myself in the morning as I, as I drive by here, I'm usually on the mics, trying to say something to get the kids off to an okay day before they get off the bus. And I recounted for them what had happened 17 years ago. Now, why did I feel that need to recount to these kids the significance of this day? Just very briefly, of course, but how it impacted our nation. Did any of you else notice September? I'm just curious. Not necessarily this last Tuesday in a particular way. You know, you know, I, I did something kind of crazy. Thank you. Some others are like, yeah, I, I've never done this before. Why this year? My question is, why this year? All right? Because I had determined that Lori and I were going to put something on a grill. We were going to cook something American. So I had available for us, because she was working at the, I had available both hamburgers and brats. And I thought, okay, these are American enough, right, for us. Bought an apple pie. It's like, okay, I'm going to do something totally American here because it's my way of saying I'm not willing to give up this idea of who we are as a nation. And um, I'm not ready to cave to people who would want to destroy us. So that was my little bit of fighting back. It didn't impact anybody's life. I know that, Crystal. Crystal, (laughs) big fight here, okay? But why in my spirit is the question. Did I feel that necessity to do something this year? Now, I take you to that because we all were, at least in one way or another, reminded of that. Reminded of what we felt when we were here 17 years ago. We heard about the events. We all found our way to a television somewhere. We watched it. We were in absolute horror at what we were seeing. First, towers. By the time I got connected to it, there were two towers just smoldering. Okay, Some of you maybe got connected to it early enough to see the second plane hit. I don't know. And then we watched and we watched and we were trying to get our arms around what had taken place and one tower goes down and the next tower goes down. And we're aware all those people who were trying to get downstairs of a hundred floors, all those stairwells as they were moving down now just died and we watched them die in front of us. Horrific that day. And we're seeing it on a flat screen with wherever we're watching it. I cannot guess that, uh, that the people who were there, and they were down in the streets, and the clouds came, or that cloud of dust came across them, and they had coworkers who didn't get out. I cannot imagine what they were feeling. Or people right there in New York who were also glued to their television, but they know their loved ones were in the towers, and they're waiting to hear some, some word that their loved one got out and they watched this destruction happen. Now, I give you all of that 
trying to help us get a sense of emotionally what we felt this Tuesday, even 17 years later, we're still feeling it, what those people on that day who watched those towers go down, what were they feeling? Because I think in some way it helps us identify with what Jeremiah was feeling when he penned the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, the next book in our study, Lamentations is an interesting book. It has but five chapters, and in the landscape that we've written here, you'll notice that uh, the only book in the entire Bible that's all... um, that's only lamentations is all that it is. It's all these, these laments as to what has, what has taken place. And Jeremiah fits into this place historically. You will recall when we were looking at Isaiah, when it, the, the, the verse that we looked at said, you know, why would you make an idol? Why, why are you going to make an idol that has no profit to you? Because you make an idol out of this end of the wood and then you burn the other end to cook your meal. But we fall down to this end with which you, you made an aisle. How foolish is that to make something to no profit? And Isaiah was calling them out on that because that was an issue in their country at that time. God was warning them and giving them a word that says, Turn away from these false idols, these gods of the nations. They also were thinking in order to protect themselves from Babylon that one way they could do that would be to enter into treaties with places like Egypt and Syria and things like that. So they're going to, yeah, we can solve this on our own. And and, and Isaiah is saying, why are you so foolishly in all of this worshiping these idol gods of these other nations? When you could call to me. Jeremiah, when we looked at his, the, the word, uh, uh, the prophetic book that carries his name, uh, Jeremiah had this question because he knew now, God had made it clear to him, uh, it's over. The city of Jerusalem is under siege, and yes, they are going to be taken. And not only are they going to be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to be carried off by him. And Jeremiah was asked by God to buy a piece of property, do all the title deed work on it. Secure those title deeds at a place where they could be found later. And Jeremiah's like, what is this all about? You said we're going to be displaced. That is without question. What's this thing about title deeds and why are you having me do this? And God said, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And what we pointed out was God was two steps ahead. Jeremiah could only see immediately, we're about to be carried away, we're about to be destroyed, carried off into Babylon. And God was like, Yes, but the reason for the clay pots is two steps down the road is you're coming back. And I will reestablish you as a nation here in the land which I gave to Abraham. So when we come to Lamentations now, the city has been sacked. The city has been destroyed. The siege has been effective. People are being and have been and are being carted out in a way. So this thing that Jeremiah feared, the thing that he preached against, that Isaiah preached against, is you're going to come under the judgment of God has happened and he has watched it right there, real time, around him. And the book of Lamentations is five chapters. Now, I'm going to read a little more than we typically do, but I want you to get this emotional feel as to where he's coming from and to how... uh, how significant this is as to what it was he experienced. So we're going to read something from each of the five chapters. We won't read the whole book, okay? 
Chapter, the, the, the first chapter of Jeremiah, verse 1, begins with this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. This is talking about Jerusalem now. Her tears are on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Remember the people who are supposed to protect her? They're not protecting her. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her as he promised he would if they didn't turn from their, from, uh, their idolatry. Because of the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. Chapter 2, we'll drop down to verse 20. You'll see the horror of what was taking place. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring? The children they have cuddled understand that they were under siege. They couldn't get supplies in or out, so they were starving to death. Should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You will recall that uh, Jeremiah raised the question that, hey, why are they coming to the city? All these people are coming to defend the city. They're coming just to die here. He had told them that. God's judgment is coming because you refuse And here he gives a description of what that looked like. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. I'm going to jump over chapter 3 because we're going to come back to it. But you're getting a feel for what this is like. I really would encourage you to read this book in one sitting and you'll get a sense more as to what it's like. Chapter 4, verse 9, this whole thing continues. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger for those, these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They become food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is God's city with God's blessing on it. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of of the just. And then it then if we drop down to chapter 5 verse 10, our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from the music The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. Do you get a sense there, as Jeremiah writes these laments, as to how desperate the situation was, and to how deeply and emotionally he has been torn up by what he watches. So those four chapters seem to, for the most part, be Jeremiah's observation as to what he sees going on around him and his pain overseeing it. Chapter 3 is a little bit different in its nature, and I ask you to read it for yourself. I think you'll see it. Because in chapter 3, Jeremiah is a little bit more personal in terms of what is taking place here. Chapter 3, verse 1, I'm the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has, he has led me and made me walk in the darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me. Time and time again throughout the day, he has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. So not only is the siege taking place on the city around him, and not only are people literally starving to death, and then when the military does break through because they have nothing left with which to fight, and they come through with the sword, and they're killing people, and they're lying in the streets, and he's watching all of this. Jeremiah very personally has been afflicted during these times because he preached against the idolatry. That wasn't well received. And so he personally was afflicted for warning them that this is what was going to happen and don't listen to the false prophets because they don't know what they're talking about. And so chapter 3 gives us that more personal angle as to what he was feeling himself. And so laments throughout the entire book. It seems completely hopeless except... There's one little point, and pretty much in the very center of the book, where Jeremiah, in the midst of all these laments, offers that there still is hope. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. Evan tells me this is the most quoted verse from the book. He knows things like that. So I take him at his word. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In our text today is verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. This idea of God being his portion to Jeremiah, or yeah, to Jeremiah, this idea carries with it this idea of that which has been, that which has been divided out to him. And he's looking at his, at, at his resources, you see, because what he's saying is that God is his resource. God is my portion. He's been divided out 
to me. I was raised in a family we didn't have much. My mom liked to bake. We had five kids. My, my grandmother lived with us. She loved sweets. So when a cake was cooked, there were eight of us looking to uh, snarf down on that cake. So I'll tell you what, we watched portions very carefully because we knew this was a treat and we wanted to make sure we got our portion. I got my fair share in all of this. Well, God, Jeremiah says, is my portion. What does that mean? Well, this, I don't think this will come up on the screen. But back in Jeremiah chapter 10, he used this statement. He also used it in chapter 51. Three verses. I'd just like you to listen to these. And it says this, Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood. He's calling them out, like Jeremiah again, on their idolatry. They're caught up in this thing. It defines their culture. And this, the metalsmiths are those who are fashioning idols in metal. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. These idols, when the judgment comes, which we're reading about in Lamentations in the next book, when it comes, these idols will do nothing for them. They're just going to get destroyed when the city is destroyed because there's nothing they can do. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like them. So now he's speaking about the one who is a portion to Jacob, a reference to the nation and his descendants. For he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So when Jeremiah uses this, con- this, this, this concept of the Lord is my portion, he means it distinctly in contrast to these lifeless useless, unprofitable idols that people have been clinging to. So that's not who my portion is. My portion is the creator God of the universe who has blessed my nation, who has called us through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and has poured out His mercy upon us. He has been actively engaged in our history and He is the one who is our portion. He is our resource. Whether the rest of the nation looks around and sees it or not, He says, He's my portion. He is the one to whom I cling. He is my resource. Not these useless idols. And friends, here's the point. Verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. Here's the point. When God is our resource, hope is our companion. When God is our resource, hope is our companion. When a false idol is our resource, when our culture is our resource, when a political system or a political party is our resource, when these are the things we're hoping in, we have no hope. But when God is our resource, the creator God of the universe, hope is our companion. There is hope when we're drawing on Him. Now, can I get honest with you? Thank you for giving me permission. Because maybe the rest of you are sitting there going, uh, no, get a little scared. You talk about getting honest, scared. We're not sure we're going to believe you anyways if you say you're being honest. Two things that bother me 
in stating this. I believe it's absolutely true, but there's two things that bother me in stating it. Number one, Chuck can understand the text. It's pretty obvious. I've asked you to read the book as a whole. Sit down this afternoon. Read this entire book. You will understand how chapter 3 stands out and offers this hope. That when God is our resource, hope is our companion. And the rest of it just gets us into these bad ways. That's obvious. But first bother for me is this. That this comes across as a Christian platitude. That scares me as a pastor. It really does. I hate the idea of throwing out platitudes to people. That's all, it's all, it's all good. So everything's fine. Okay, God, all right, God's your resource. All right. Hope's your companion. It's all fine. And sometimes we just throw these things out, and I don't want to do that with people. I really don't, because platitudes don't work. Platitudes aren't real. Platitudes don't hold up in the severities of life. They just don't. So I don't want to come across. I had somebody tell me one time they'd lost, they'd lost a child. And somebody had said to them in their very consoling words, I know how you feel. I lost a dog a couple weeks ago. I don't want to come across that way. But, but sometimes we, this, is, this is just what we, how we just throw things out to people. So that concerns me. I know somebody else lost their, ultimately lost their daughter to a, to a bipolar um, condition. And it took their very talented daughter at a young age um, because her, she couldn't get things quite under control that would, that would sustain them. But in the midst of that, when they still didn't understand that she was bipolar and her behavior was just erratic... They were trying to grasp this, you know, to have a Christian uh, sister in the Lord say to the mom, well, um, you know, she's probably demon-possessed because of some of her ill behaviors. Hello? Okay, we got all these simple and quick answers. I'm not interested in simple, quick answers, people. People get hurt by those things. So that's one. I don't want to come across to say, hey, when God is our resource, hope is our companion, boom, we're done, we can leave now. Because some of you will leave here going, that's not enough. Easy for you to say and throw that out. But you're not in the struggle. Remember I talked about struggles that people are in and pain that people are in, stuff we're dealing with, the loads that we have. A Christian platitude isn't going to help. We need something that's going to, that's going to sustain us. Secondly, my second bother on this thing is personal failure. You know, pastors... We're in this weird spot because we proclaim these great and lofty truths. And when we're healthy and well-fed and our grandkids are here this weekend, it's easy to proclaim great and lofty truths and how great everything is. That when God is our resource, hope is our companion and let's just live there, people. It's all good. Good friend who actually put me in touch with this church. Larry was in contact with him. He remembers the name Bill Gast. Bill, um, Bill was looking for ministry and wound up taking a church out on uh, the east, east side of the nation. Okay, about uh, a couple years back now, Bill was diagnosed with bladder cancer. And the treatment for his condition was to remove his bladder. 
And he said, he said, it's kind of odd to think that before I, when I come out of this surgery, I will never feel the need to urinate again because I'm going to be hooked up to a bag. So I said, Bill, you know, you and I, we stand up in front of people and tell people how great God is. What was that like? He said, that was hard. So because honestly, there were points where I honestly felt like, God, you lied to me. You're not there for me. You're not this one that I can trust on like I've told all these people, right? As Bill is feeling this weight of his life is going to dramatically change because of this, because of this bladder cancer that he has. Can I trust this God? And for Bill, he said, you know, it's, you go through it, you deal with all these things, and he said... I began to understand God was faithful and God was present with me. He said, and it came in forms like this. Again, let's talk about being the body of Christ here, right? Serious when I talk about that, friends. He said it came in the forms of a text message of somebody saying, I'm praying for you. Somebody sharing a scripture. Somebody dropping a note card. Somebody asking if they can help mow his lawn. But the body of Christ coming around him then, ministering to him. That's how I saw God's faithfulness in this. It's what got him through. But there was that moment, there was that place where he felt like he was hanging from a thread. So there's this thing that we've spoken it to others, pastors, me included, and then we come to our own difficult times and we wonder, do I even believe this? Because I have my own personal failure that relates to this. I recall saying to somebody after four and a half years of ministering in Lake Bronson and Lancaster, had wonderful time there. I recall saying to somebody that I don't know a lot, but I think there's one thing I get. God is well intended towards me. That's one thing in my Christian life I now have pinned down. God is well intended towards me. Before six months were out, I was shaking my fists at God saying, you gave me a bad deal. You gave me a bad deal, God. I sought to serve you faithfully. I worked as hard as I could, and my life has just been like this big, this big pile of puke in front of me, and I don't know what to do with it. And you gave me a bad deal. See, I was hanging by a thread Because that's what we get sometimes. And I didn't realize as firmly as I thought what I had declared. I know God is well intended towards me. Oh, really? Hey, hit the wall of burnout and see if you can still say that, Gare. Hanging by a thread, all I could say was, God, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. I am so totally confused. I'm in such darkness. I'm so lost. God, don't give up on me. But I had declared to him, he gave me a bad deal. Now, God didn't give up on me. For Bill, it was letters and notes and text messages. For me, it was a hot dish. I described this in my book on grace. That as a woman came to our door, what I consider the darkest, lowest moment that I was experiencing. 
unexpectedly shows up at our door with a pan of hot dish. And this is just for you and your family right now. And it's as if I heard God say to me, I am here. But I tell you, things were pretty far unraveled. See, so let's think about this. Is, is this a possibility that here's where we potentially, pastors or parishioners, it doesn't matter, and don't sit there thinking, well, that pastor is clearly a loser. If I was in those circumstances, I surely would hang on without any problem. Don't go there. Don't go there. Because you're as fallen and broken as every pastor you've ever, you ever listened to. And you don't want God to test that. Where we potentially get discouraged, pastors or discouraged, pastors or parishioners, I think might be this. We think the words on the page that define the doctrine that we have, that we have filed away in our minds are adequate to sustain us. There was a song, I, I don't know when it came out, it was great. Yeah, it was a great song. It had a good beat to it. Get your toe tapping in quartets. Like to sing it and all. But it goes like this. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. Well, I want to tell you something, friends. You get at the end of that thread and you're not sure you believe it anymore. You're not sure God's even there. You're not sure he's working on your behalf. See, that all sounds good in the song, and it is all great when my grandchildren were here this morning, and I've had a good time, and it's just, that's all wonderful, until our lives come to the place where, is, where we feel as defeated as Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, and we feel like what Jeremiah has described in all these chapters of Lamentations, where it's just decimated. We don't hold up as well as we expected. What's the solution for that? You may take the solution and have to think on it a while. You may say, it's not working for me now. Um, But here's where I think the solution might lie. When our life is being suspended on that thread. The Lord is my portion. The creator God of the universe. He's the one who is here for me. He's my resource. Says my soul, therefore I hope in him. When God is our resource, hope is our companion. But what I find interesting is Jeremiah said at this point, says my soul. Not my intellect. My soul. That this truth has gotten hold of my soul so it can remind my mind as these thoughts are spinning that, wait a second, God is my portion. Because my mind will not recover it effectively and make it work for me. God is my portion has to be a truth anchored in our soul, not simply repeated in our heads. That's what all I'm trying to say. Bill saw it in how God's people reached out to him. I saw it when my life was a mess. I said, God, don't let go of me. You see, that was my soul crying out. And I believed that I could still call on him. And he was my portion and he proved himself.
My dear and precious friends, God, her life is going to bring us many disappointments, heartaches, setbacks, frightening circumstances, discouragements, sufferings. They are real, people. They are real. And some of us are going to walk out of here and we're going to turn on a Vikings game. We're going to be so excited. They won their first game and this is their big year and all that stuff. But I guarantee you, some people are here right now. And they are under a burden that you would not believe. Another year, it'll be different people. But we're all going to take our turn with it. Every last one of us. What I think is interesting is in this, sometimes, here's what, notice what Jeremiah said. Sometimes God, God calls us to wait it out by hoping in Him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. God doesn't always give this immediate deliverance. Woohoo! I love Jesus. Okay, God, take this from me. What did Paul say? He prayed three times for that thorn in the flesh to be delivered. God said, nope, I'm going to leave it there. It has a purpose in your life. And Jeremiah says that it is good sometimes. It's good that I need to just wait and see how God works and see what he does as from my soul I continue to trust him. I continue to look to him. may not be easy, but at times it's necessary. You might ask, Gary, why is it necessary? Well, I don't have all the answers. But here's a few. Again, they may come across as, as Christian platitudes. I don't mean them in that way at all. Because if you understand what I'm getting at, I'm getting at a place, friends, that we need to be seeking for a place of growth where we're allowing God to make his presence deeper and deeper known into our very being. So when these times come, um, we can sustain, we can, our soul will speak to our minds that, uh, hey, God is here. But what, what might God be doing through these difficult times? One, he's con- without a doubt, Romans 8 tells us he's going to use it to conform us to the image of Christ. And that's his ultimate outcome for us. He's using it to shape us into Christ's likeness. Not fun. But when you wind up on the other side of it and you can look back and you can see what, how he used it, you say, okay, I don't ever want to go through it again. But I can see God's purpose in it in my life personally. Second thing, he uses it to prepare us to minister to others. Paul said that to the Corinthians, that we, we can minister to others because we've been through the same sufferings. And so now we can declare how God is faithful when their life is hanging on a thread. Just we don't have to do it with Christian platitudes. We can now identify as Christ who came and bore our burdens and can identify in our suffering. We do so with compassion and kindness and encouragement, acceptance, not criticism. So it can be necessary to prepare us to minister to others. And thirdly, and I don't know that this really does a lot for people. God may allow us to go through these times to reveal his victories to the angelic realm. Now, Scripture says the angels are desiring to look into what God is doing here. You recall the book of Job? It was about Job being criticized uh, by Satan. And God said, well, just wait, see how he holds up. 
And if there's anybody who ever's life got down to the thinnest of threads, it was Job. But God's doing a bigger work than just our comfort, friends, is what I'm trying to get at with that. And so he has purposes that go beyond our understanding. And so we wait. We trust him. And we live in that place where we, we know that he has been good to us before. He is not giving up on his compassion. I find it interesting at the end of this particular chapter where it became so personal for Jeremiah that we just pick up these last few verses. Verse 55, chapter 3. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, Do not fear Now, Jeremiah is not saying this has been fun. He's not saying as I continue to go through these difficult times, everything's good. This is a joyride. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is God's presence is affirming himself. God is affirming his presence to Jeremiah and his work. And he's able to sustain because God is there. Because I don't see anywhere in this particular book where Jeremiah says, this has been so much fun. Thank you, Lord. You know, it just... uh, I, asked, I, I, I was talking to Lori Lindholm just a little bit before the service and because um, when I asked her to discuss something with me because Lori Lindholm is the only one that I know in this congregation right now who I can approach about this, okay? Because it's a Lori Lindholm kind of a thing. So she told me when they were out in Colorado that they did some zip lining. It was kind of fun to zip line across some, I don't know, the Grand Canyon. I don't know where she did. I haven't, didn't have enough time to find out. But this is what Lori Lindholm does. She like zip lines and jumps out of planes and she gets done and goes, whoo, that was fun. But I want to tell you, friends, nowhere in here is, is Jeremiah going, that's really fun, Lord. But he knows he has to wait. But he waits with his soul, confident that God is at work. And there he finds his peace. And there he finds a way to sustain and strength and goodness. For each day. My dear friends, I don't know what you're dealing with today. I really don't. I'm not trying to give you a Christian platitude. I'm trying to encourage you to grow deeper in Jesus Christ so that whatever the burdens are, your soul is so linked to God that what's inside of you here is so aware of who God is that He's your portion, that He is there actively engaged in your life, that He is not going to let you go, that He will sustain you may ask you to wait for a little. It's not a quick fix. It's not a simple, snappy answer that doesn't work. It's a place where each one of us needs to get to as God's children. That in the very depths of our soul, the very depths of our being, beyond the cerebral, that's where I got caught up. I've, I think I got it figured out that God has my best interest at heart. <laughs> I had no clue. I had a teaching from words on a page. So go deeper, my friends. Go deeper in Jesus Christ. Go deeper in his word. Go deeper with his people who are learning and able to minister to you and you can minister to them. But I'm asking us to go deeper so that we can sustain and God can minister to us and we can be effective in our world in reaching others with the gospel. Father, thank you. Thank you. There are times, Lord, as with the nation of Israel, with the person of Jeremiah, there are times you must allow us
to go through very difficult circumstances and they have your eternal purposes in mind. And Lord, we lose sight of that. So I pray that each one of us here today, we will deepen our commitment. We will make a choice to know Christ as the first priority in our lives so that as you take us through on this journey, Father, we trust you each step of the way and we find you sustaining us, whether you're allowing us difficult times or blessings. Lord, that we always look to you and find new life in, in and through you, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.